0: Welcome
1: to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China.
0: Hello and welcome, I'm Ruth Kirchner. In this podcast, I want to talk about China's environmental challenges and how society is dealing with them. Those challenges are of course well known, the smog in Beijing and other big cities, but also water pollution and general environmental degradation, results of years of unfettered economic growth. Environmental NGOs and the media have played an important part in raising awareness, but do they still have a voice under the government of Xi Jinping? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, a seasoned China watcher and editor of China Dialogue, an independent non-profit organization dedicated to promoting a common understanding of China's environmental challenges. China Dialogue has a bilingual website, it's headquartered in London, but also has an office in Beijing. Welcome, Isabel Hilton. Now, let's start with the NGOs and environmental activism. Is it actually possible to say how many NGOs in China deal with environmental questions?
1: Oh, gosh, these numbers are always quite difficult in China. I mean, numbers range from tens of thousands to, you know, up to a quarter of a million. Not all of those will be environmental, um, but a substantial number are because the environment and the impacts of the Industrial Revolution on the environment, of course, are, are very much in public concerns.
0: Now, there's, of course, a whole range of groups from like Greenpeace with big offices in Beijing and international staff to very, very small local groups, single issue NGOs, so to speak. what are actually the main issues they are dealing with on the environmental side?
1: These have, I, I suppose, developed in the in the 10 years, 11 years now that we've been running China Dialogue. I think the, f- the first and in some ways most successful environmental activism in China was against the building of dams on the Western rivers, so the last undammed rivers, and famous campaigns like the campaign against the dam across Tiger Leaping Gorge, all of that in the early 2000s. And a lot of the people involved in that, and, and several of them were journalists, went on to found other NGOs, which are now established and successful. particular example would be Ma Jin, who runs IPE, which is an, a very good website which uses public data to track violations of the laws against polluting, starting with water but now into air. And they use that information to help uh, companies, uh, beginning with multinational corporations, but now I I believe also Chinese companies, to understand that if they have polluters in their supply chain, what they should and and can do about it. That's a very successful example. Water pollution is a particular issue, but then so is Soil pollution and air is probably the universal question. You know, in Beijing, it's the only city I know where if you stop anyone randomly in the street and say, do you know what PM 2.5 is, everyone will say yes. And that, of course, is the smallest particle of air pollution. You know, here in Berlin or in London, people would look at you blankly. And that's just an index of public concern. Uh, How much leeway
0: did um, environmental NGOs have back then? And how maybe has uh, the situation changed um, since 2012 when Xi Jinping came
1: to power? Well, it has changed. And, And certainly, I suppose, if you look back, that was a very open time. It was a time when there were all sorts of alliances being formed between officials, for instance, in what was then the Environmental Protection Bureau, later became the ministry. This is a ministry full of people who are trying to protect the environment, who have not enough money, not enough staff, not enough power. And you see that in other countries. It was particularly true in China. So they made alliances with other sectors, including uh, civil society, including media, to try to amplify their efforts. And it was pretty successful and it was a very creative collaboration. So at that time they got all sorts of regulations implemented on accountability, on the public right to know, on transparency. So all of that was beginning to be put in place. Then Xi Jinping comes to power and he takes office, I suppose, at a time when there are concerns about slowing economic growth, about how the party is going to manage the transition, which is notoriously difficult through the middle income trap, So the party is worried, it's worried about its legitimacy, it's worried about how it maintains you know its position. And one response is that they begin to scan the landscape for groups that might cause them trouble, for you know what are these foreigners doing in China and all this kind of thing. And it gets noticeably chillier in terms of both international collaboration but also collaboration between, state entities and civil society entities and I think we're really still in that phase it's got more difficult on the other hand at the same time the state itself recognized that one way through the middle-income trap was to become leaner greener more efficient to go up the technology chain and the technologies that they identified as the technologies of the future were things like low-carbon goods and services so electric vehicles uh, renewable energy And, uh, you know, they, they know that they have a huge burden of cleanup from the Industrial Revolution. So their money and official effort is, in theory, and in many ways in practice, going into that. So it's always, as in China, it's always a mixed picture. The problem now is how quickly and how well that will be implemented and how the state itself deals with the very big, powerful, entrenched interests who will resist this change. And that's, I think, where civil society still has an enormous role to play. So do you think then that's, that NGOs still have a voice?
0: Um, because we have seen that some groups have come under enormous pressure. Uh, we know that about lawyers, independent human rights lawyers. We also know it about some NGOs uh, that have faced either having their websites closed down, there have been arrests. Um, the authorities have put enormous pressure on those groups. Um, how have environmental groups been affected by that?
1: You're absolutely right. We've seen an awful lot of very sort of retrograde pressure going on, and particularly the lawyers have had a very, very difficult time. It has been the case that the environmental groups have had more space. That's not to say they don't also get into trouble from time to time. And and it's also true that, that if you look at the bulk of them are not registered, so they have no legal standing. But nevertheless, in terms of their activity... Provided they don't get across a local powerful interest group, and that can happen, then on the whole, they have more space to act. Because what they're trying to do is in line, actually, with state policy. So then you get down to the nitty gritty of what happens at every level in the state and who you annoy or or who encourages you. And so you have Examples at the top of the tree, if you like, of very well-established entities like IPE or like Friends of Nature. And there are also some international NGOs who have managed to establish a relationship in China with quite a long history. An example of that would be WWF. And they continue to work. They work on largely technical issues, but not exclusively. And they continue to play this quite subtle and, and delicate role of trying to advance the parts of the state agenda that are in line with their objectives and trying to act as some kind of check and balance on abuses and failure to implement laws and regulations, which, of course, is a major issue always in China.
0: Now China has a a new law on international NGOs in particular and that has been very very controversial. It came into effect in January. What kind of effect did that have on the work of environmental groups both maybe domestic and those with international
1: links? It's the law that's causing a lot of headaches. It's new, it's full effects, you know, we we can't really assess until maybe a year in, but it came into effect in January. The drafts that were published last year caused a lot of concern. In the environmental sector, there were relatively few organizations that were already registered in China, in the international NGO sector, I've mentioned some of them. They have been successful in moving their registration over from the Ministry of Civil Affairs to the new supervising entity, which is the Public Security Bureau. And you think, well, why would public security be the appropriate entity here? And I think it tells you quite what the the sort of sentiment is behind this law, which is a growing suspicion of international activity, a kind of feeling that foreigners are up to no good. You know, we've seen this before in China. If you're successful and you can register, it does give you a legal basis. But you are supervised by the Public Security Bureau. And that is an uncomfortable place for most NGOs to be because they are, you know, used to being autonomous, self-organising, and thought of as benign and, you know, contributing to the public good. So, it is a very uncomfortable place to be. And also, the Public Security Bureau has very little experience, and probably zero experience, in regulating civil society. That's not been its function. But the far bigger problem is getting registered at all, because you have to find a supervising. Unit. Their activities have to be in line with your activities. There's not a lot in it for any of those supervising units on the list. You know, they're basically being invited to take on a headache and a bit of risk. And most bureaucrats showed those two items will head for the hills, and there's been a lot of heading for the hills. So far, there haven't been any successful new registrations, and that really tells you something. Now, There are maybe 6,000 foreign NGOs uh, that have been operating in China, most of them in some kind of grey zone. A lot of them have a funding element which funds grassroots civil societies, particularly Chinese entities that can't get registered and therefore don't have bank accounts and therefore can't be in the system. Now, were that to dry up, that would have a really, really chilling effect on China and the development of its society all round.
0: This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue. We're discussing whether NGOs still have a voice in dealing with China's environmental challenges. Now, let's move on to China Dialogue and your own work. A lot has been said about tightening restrictions, not just for NGOs, but also for the media. Has this actually affected your own work?
1: Well, I suppose what we've observed, along with a lot of other international actors who have had very warm relationships in China, is that they've been cooling off. And this, I think, is not something we've done. It's just the atmosphere is pretty chilly. And people are much more aware of the risks of uh, engagement with international entities. That said, you know, we have a very well-established network of contributors and readers in China. And uh, we are still read and 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 we are still widely shared in China we have content sharing arrangements with with both international and and Chinese publications and and those remain in place so it it is more chilling and we are careful obviously we have staff in China and we have noticed that the room for discussion is probably narrower than it was particularly in the judgment of our China-based staff. You know, there are sometimes they think that it's maybe not wise to publish something or say something at this particular time, or it should be said in a different way, or there might be a different way to do things. I hope it doesn't get too much tighter, because I think that it's a loss for China if you can't have uh, an open discussion about what is, after all, the biggest set of problems that China faces. Well,
0: I've looked at your website and there, there are still all these stories about, among other things, a controversial dam project in eastern China or about water problems, water scarcity in that new pet project of uh, Xi Jinping about this new uh, capital city he wants to build not that far away from Beijing. So there seems to be more leeway for environmental reporting than, let's say, for political reporting, at least that that was true in the past. Do you still think that holds true today?
1: I think without a doubt. And, and I think it's partly because, you know, environmental reporting is pointing to real material issues. You know, if you're going to build a new city, wouldn't you want to know at the outset that it might not have a water supply? You know, it, this might affect your planning. And it's the same with any big project. You know, uh, I, I think that, that environmental reporting provides really vital inputs into policy decision and policy making. That said, within that, you know, the, there are certainly no go areas.
0: And where are those red
1: lines? Well, for instance, the red lines would tend to be about more related to the cause of, of a disaster rather than the effect. So when the port of Tianjin blew up, you may remember. Spe- In
0: 2015, yeah.
1: Spectacularly and, and you know, toxic, awful stuff. Clearly something had gone very wrong with the management of the, of the port of Tianjin. But quite quickly it became clear that it was not up to the media to find out you know, where it had gone wrong and who was responsible because the party would do that. And the, they, they have ways of indicating very strongly to the media that you shouldn't go there. The same would be true of the, do you remember the pigs floating down the Huangpu River? A Huangpu River is part of Shanghai's water supply. And suddenly there were hundreds of pigs dead in the river. We still don't know where they came from because any inquiry to that effect was very firmly discouraged on the ground. So, you know, there are issues that you just kind of hit a wall or you think, if I go further, I'm going to, you know, something quite difficult is going to happen. So, in a, a, a different society, I mean, in the UK or Germany, uh, journalists would be all over that, you know, finding what happened and telling the story from beginning to end. So, in China, it's often still the case that you can tell part of the story, but you can't tell the whole story. And you can't really then hold the government
0: accountable, can you? Uh, You can't really sort of check um, the promises on environmental policies, for instance, that uh, the government has made and whether they really um,
1: have put that into action. That's not entirely true. It's true in these big spectacular moments and the government would say, well, we'll do that. This is not the media's job. Uh, You would be spreading rumours, you know, which is, as you know, a major crime. On the other hand, I do remember a very good piece in, in, I think it was Beijing Youth Daily some years back, where they went round all the water treatment plants that had been installed at public expense in Beijing and found that, you know, something like 90% of them were never switched on because they cost money to run. Now, that's a failure of public policy and a failure of, of, you know, implementation, which Chinese media, you know, on its own initiative, went out and investigated and reported. So there are lots of things like that that you can do, which make a huge difference, because part of the problem in China is that you have, you know, fine laws and regulations, and around the first corner, they're being flouted or ignored, simply because there isn't the machinery there to make sure that they're honoured. And I think that civil society and the media still have a role to play in that.
0: Now, finally, then, you have written about China for years. You have seen the country move ahead and sometimes take steps in the opposite direction or move backwards. Um, Are you pessimistic or optimistic
1: about civil society and the media in China? Oh gosh! Well, you know my benchmark goes back quite a long way. I, I first went to China to university in 1973, where there was no civil society, and you know there was the remarbaung, and 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 one two television channels. So my my journey started at at a very different China. It's been fantastic to see China blossom the way it has. And of course, there are bad sides. And of course, it's always, you know, constrained. But I have a real conviction that the energy and creativity and capacity for self-organization of the Chinese people simply can't be constrained for very long and it would be a shame you know that's the, in many ways the strength of the country I think we're in quite a difficult moment and I think it won't change very quickly but that core energy will still be there I mean I saw what happened when when the brakes came off after the death of Mao and you you know who knew <laughs> suddenly you were in a completely different landscape and when that moment comes again, as I'm, I'm sure it will, then I think we will we will see that blossoming again. Isabel Hilton,
0: thanks for sharing your
1: insights. That was Isabel
0: Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, an independent organization that is promoting a common understanding of China's environmental challenges. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.
1: You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merix.org.